Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look at Bathsheba today, who Matthew describes only as the wife of Uriah. And and he does that in order to, to point us to the story that we're considering right now, and also to say you know, that the presumption there was one thing, that 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 it's it, um, that Uriah was the husband or, or was the father, but the reality is that David was. And so what happens? So David has already tried to cover his tracks by getting Uriah to go home and spend the night with his wife, and he said no, no. The ark of, of is the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in an open field. I, I can't go down. And do that. I know I'm going to suffer with them, even if I'm here. David said, "Remain here today, also, and tomorrow I'll send you back." So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him. And he ate in the presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he didn't go down to his house again. David's thinking, "Well, maybe if I get him drunk, he'll he'll really want that, and he'll go down and sleep with his wife." In the morning. David knew that he didn't go to sleep with his wife. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So he, he gives Uriah a letter to take to Joab because he knows he can trust him. This is not addressed to Uriah, so he's not going to look at it. Nope. He sends it to Joab through Uriah because Uriah is such a loyal and good man that he won't even take a look at this. In the letter, David wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Put him out front and then have the men come back, fall back so that Uriah is the target. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. Now, why would Joab do this? What did you, It's curious what Joab must have thought when he received this. He must surely have looked at this and thought, well, that's one of the most bizarre orders I've ever received or could even have imagined. Why would David want me to do this? But nonetheless, he does. Maybe he's thinking something must have happened while Uriah was back at home. I don't know what, but something must have. (laughs) And so the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. So it's not just Uriah who dies here. David's committing murder. Because it's premeditated. David's come up with a plan to execute that, and Joab is his accomplice. But Joab, again, just being faithful to do what David said, doesn't even question him. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news of the fighting. He instructed the messenger. He said, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of a Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall also say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And so the point of Joab's message back is to say, David, you might question my tactics. You might question how I got this done. But in the end, your will was done. And I chose to do it the way that made most sense in the situation. You're not here, David. You aren't with us. You don't know what the actual situation was. So the plan you described wasn't viable 
We were attacking a city. We couldn't just send him out there to attack the city by himself. So David's plan is flawed because David's not there where he ought to be. All this stuff is intended to rebuke David. Every bit of this is intended to point to David as detached, remote, and making really bad decisions, beginning with his decision to stay in Jerusalem while his men went out to battle. So the messenger came and told David all that Joab had told him. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance to the gate. They were, they were pressing the offensive on us, and so we had to then move from being defensive to offensive, and we drove them back to the gate. The archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So Joab's concerned that David's going to be upset because David's plan was that Uriah would be the only target, but other men died. And, and this response from Joab is to explain why, but to also understand <coughs> David will be satisfied with that <coughs> because the objective was to kill Uriah. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, don't let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So don't let it displease you. We're going to hear that word again in just a second. When the wife of Uriah, that would be Bathsheba, but but we want to make sure it gets driven home that she's the wife of Uriah, the dead man, that her husband, Uriah, was dead. She lamented over her husband. Did you hear that? The wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, and she lamented over her husband. So the the author here is just driving home how bad this is by using wife once and husband twice. And when the morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, her morning, was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So he told Joab not to worry about it, not to be displeased about this, but the Lord was displeased with all of this. And David is the one who is to blame for it. And so now she's come to the house. She's had the son. His name is Solomon. And then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And so David, Nathan comes, Nathan the prophet, comes and tells David a parable. There were two men in a certain city. One was rich. The other was poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds. Poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought, up, brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich young man, a rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, "As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he'll restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity." And Nathan said to David, "You're the man." Thus says the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I'd add to you much more. David had, had wives. He had, he had um, Michal, the daughter of Saul. He had other wives as well. And yet, that's not enough for you, David. 
That's exactly what it said. And this same idea will become a huge curse in the time of Solomon, who has many, many wives, but he's taken them from all the nations to do this. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what's evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you've taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You used their agency to do it, but it was you who did it, David. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And then there's a curse that's going to be put on against David. I'll I'll raise up evil again against you out of your own house. That's going to be Absalom. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. I'll expose it for all the world to see, he says. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die, which is what he deserved, the death penalty, because he committed murder and adultery. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. I said earlier that child was Solomon. We don't actually know what that child's name is. He ultimately becomes the father of of Solomon through Bathsheba, but this one he loses. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. Do you hear that again? Afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David sought God on behalf of the child. He fasted and went in and laid, lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he wouldn't, nor would he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him the child was dead because they said, while the child was alive, we spoke to him. He didn't listen to us. How then can we say to him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, he understood the child was dead, and he asked, is the child dead? They said, yes, he's dead. David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. Then he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants asked him, What's this thing you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but now that the child dies, you arise and eat food? He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. There's a lot in that passage. There's a lot in that passage right there. David says, Now he's dead. Why should I fast? It seemed a, a smart thing to do while the Lord was well, while the boy was alive. It made sense for me to pray for him and to fast for him and hope that the Lord would be gracious to me in a level that I don't that I don't deserve. Because the reality is, David's sin was was forgiven and put away by the Lord, and then the proof Nathan gives of that is you're not going to die. But the product of this um, adultery and this murder won't live. He will die. So the child dies in order that David can live. That What a horrible thing. I mean, if, if you're David, can you imagine the prayer, Lord, take me, not the child. The child is innocent. I have to live at some level with this guilt the rest of my life. And that's why David writes Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O Lord. He writes it with respect to this because he knows that he has sinned so grievously against the Lord. 
that it's unbelievable. He certainly sinned against Bathsheba, and he certainly sinned against Uriah. But at the same time, the grievous sin that he committed was against the Lord, the one who had raised him into this position and put him here. And now he no longer is responding to the Lord. He's responding to his desires. And he's done exactly the same thing that Cain did. He's done exactly the same thing, and he thinks he's gotten away with it. There's no way in the world David was going to get away with this. And it's an amazing thing because David says, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So David said he's not going to be resurrected from the dead. Now, this is what a picture. This child born to David lives only a little while and then dies. You can see that connection with Jesus, the one who, the innocent one who dies for the sins of others. He pays the price. Not for his own sin. He prayed the price for the sin of his father, David. And so the Lord took him. But, but out of that, David finds redemption. And the redemption is in the next uh, verse. Then David com- comforted his wife Bathsheba. You hear that? She's got a name again. She's got a name and she has a relationship. David comforted his wife Bathsheba. After the child dies... We get her name again, and now she's no longer the wife of Uriah. She is the wife of David. And he went into her, and he lay with her, and she bore a son, and she called his, he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And Jedidiah um, means beloved of the Lord. And so David, Solomon is the, is the name, but David called him Jedidiah because he was beloved of the Lord, because Nathan told him that. The Lord loved David and Solomon enough to send Nathan, the one who had confronted David about his sin, sends Nathan now to comfort David and to tell him that that while the other one died, this one is beloved by the Lord. And so David rejoices, and because of the, he hears this word that the Lord loves Solomon, he understands that his own judgment the judgment against David for adultery and the murder of Uriah the Hittite, he knows that 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 is now past. He's no longer living in that thing. He's no longer living in sin. The Lord has redeemed it. The Lord has given David redemption and has given David something to look forward to. So the Lord's saying, I'm not holding that against you. He's now, you've done it the right way, David. I mean, is there any question that God always had a plan? And that that plan always involved Bathsheba. There's no question that that's true. But that's the problem with us. It's the problem that we all have. We take matters into our own hands. If the Lord's promised us something, then we're willing to do, or if we think he has, we're willing to do anything except wait on him. Right? I mean, this goes on and on and on. It's all through Scripture. The biggest failure is typically those people who have received the promise are unwilling to wait for the Lord for the fulfillment, and they take matters into their own hands. And and what comes of that? Every single time, what comes of it is a mess. It begins with Abraham sleeping with Hagar at Sarah's suggestion. And what does that produce? Ishmael, who's described as a wild donkey of a man. And that explains amazingly. Two Bedouins in the wilderness, in the desert, thousands of years ago, said, what could it hurt? 
Let's do this. We've waited on God long enough, and now we're looking for some way of saying, well, maybe it's supposed to happen this way. And so what happens is, well, you get an Ishmael and explains much of the conflict in the world today between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. It's an amazing thing. The decisions we make actually matter that much. And so they took matters into their own hand because they were tired of waiting, and they did that. David takes matters into his own hands because he can't wait any longer, and he creates a problem. And that can't be. But, but it's clear in my mind that the Lord who superintends everything, who's sovereign over all things, who's providential over all things, that he always had in mind the plan that Bathsheba would be the mother of the next king. Don't know how that plan would have worked. Have no earthly idea how it would have happened. But, but I do know and believe with all my heart that that was always God's plan, that she would be the mother of Solomon. And David would, would get the heir that will sit on his throne. But that one was going to come through Solomon, not through the others who were Jewish. Abigail, Jewish. Michal, Jewish. But now comes Bathsheba, the one who comes in the wrong way. And yet God uses her to bring in Solomon. And there's no question this is why she's included in the genealogy in Matthew, that, that God redeemed something here. He redeemed sin. He redeemed a, a terrible situation. He's able and willing to redeem even adultery and murder in order to serve his purpose because he loves his people. So if I had any piece of advice that I would give you, that if there's anything in your life that you believe God has, has promised you, take a deep breath, stop, and wait. Wait for him. When he tells you to do something, do it, but confirm it with others that you're actually being called to do something and you're not just acting because you're tired of waiting. Because what happens typically in those situations is you end up waiting longer than you otherwise would have to receive that promise. Or you disqualify yourself ultimately if you continue on and on and on to do this. And so here what we get through Bathsheba is Solomon, who will be in the line of Christ. And tomorrow what we'll do is we will just... we'll kind of look at, in a broad sense, the, the rest of that genealogy, many of whom are in that genealogy. We have no earthly idea who they are because they're, they're not people who, who they, they're falling in that intertestamental period after the uh, fall of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon. And then in that period after that, when, when the scriptures are silent, that 400 prophetic that 400 years of prophetic silence, sort of like the 400 years in Egypt, that then what we get is this, this idea that, that we don't know who these people are, but, but those genealogies would have existed in the temple in Jerusalem, which fell in AD 70, where then those same genealogies were lost to history. But, but that's the reason that I say to you that I believe Matthew's gospel was written prior to the fall of the temple in Jerusalem because he has access to that information and those records and gives us that full genealogy in a way that would be absolutely impossible to anyone in our day. So there we have it. We finished up with Bathsheba. She becomes the mother of Solomon. Ultimately, later, 
there's a situation after David's death where, where they're going to raise up another one from inside. And then Nathan comes back to Bathsheba and says, here's what's going on. You need to go plead with the king now. And she does. And that's how Solomon ultimately ends up sitting on the throne is through Bathsheba's intercession with David to, for her son to sit on the throne as God had promised from the beginning. So in spite of this situation, God uses this woman Bathsheba to bring about the next one who will sit on the throne and the final one, actually, who will sit on a united throne in a united kingdom.